Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And we have a very special episode of the show for you today. We have one of my favorite CEOs in the space, Bill, the CEO of Abra, one of the leading crypto wealth management platforms out there in the industry. I have in my notes here, I didn't know this, you gave the first TED Talk on Bitcoin in 2012 before going on to found the company. So we don't throw the word OG around on this show quite that often, but I think it's a proper moniker for you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thrilled to be here. Huge fan and of the block and what you guys do. And yeah, really excited to be here. Well, this has been a long time coming as far as I'm concerned. You've seen quite a number of cycles, a quite number of meltdowns. How are you navigating the slings and arrows of the market this week with everything that's going on with UST and Luna. Yeah, so I put uh, kind of four hats on that I have to wear as given my various roles. You know, first and foremost, I think about our customers and clients. Are we doing right by them? Are they doing right by themselves? You know, we have our private client services team. Our job is not to give investment advice, but to kind of explain how things work, what your options are in the space. And, and so we help them navigate. I think about our employees and, and how, you know, some of them are exposed to crypto. You know, they convert their salaries immediately to Bitcoin. They're all in just like I am. They're, mm -hmm. you know, what you all call irresponsibly long. And we have our convictions and it's long-term play for us. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where financially, if crypto goes to zero, I'll still be fine, even though I'm, I'm in that irresponsibly long camp. But you know, a lot of people may not be in that position and try to assuage their fears. And they also want to make sure from a company perspective that there's, you know, somebody awake at the wheel. And unlike the Fed, for example, that, mm -hmm. you know, they're half drunk, half asleep or some combination of the two. And, you know, they have family and 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 board and investors. And, and so anyway, so you're kind of managing all of this at the same time. And from my perspective, I've seen this before. I've lived through this multiple times. Uh, hey, look, I remember waiting online for gas with my mom in New Jersey in the 70s. And, and so I was a little kid. I barely remember it. I was probably five. But but I remember it, you know, and, and trust me, this is not that. <laughs> OK, 50 percent pull downs you know, drawdowns in the price of crypto are not the sky is falling. It's the price you pay for an exponentially growing asset in an economy that is kind of semi managed. Right. And, and so Amazon works the same way. And that's the way it goes. If you can't take that level of volatility. Now I'm talking about investor perspective. I'm not talking about building products 
that 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 function on top of digital assets, which is what we do as a company. But just from an investor perspective, you have to, in my opinion, be willing to accept that if you're anything but a short-term investor. I think that's what the biggest difference is between this crypto bear market and previous ones. It's not like the grass is all that much greener in US equities, which wasn't necessarily the case in 2018. If you look at you know, pick your favorite crypto, maybe not Luna, but any other and juxtapose it or put it right next to a Netflix chart or any other FANG stock or a Robinhood chart or a block chart, mm -hmm. they're not going to look all that different. Right. So, so think about this. If you're 34 or younger, your working life has never experienced a recession. Now, technically you still haven't, uh, but I'm pretty sure we're either in one or close to one. And I think the June prints will show that the Fed recognizes that there's been a dramatic slowdown in the economy and the bond markets and oil prices have done their job. And that's a quandary because you've got massive inflation still happening. Even if it's slowed, it's still big. So anyway, that's all a big problem. But my point is, is that from a crypto perspective, we have all of these people who love what we stand for in the space, the idea of decentralization, all these different projects. And it's been up and to the right from a kind of macroeconomic perspective for all kinds of reasons for over 10 years. And all of a sudden, it's not that anymore, right? To your point, mm -hmm. you know, I, how do I reconcile as, as a kid who grew up, you know, with no recession, which is kind of what happened for many in the dot-com era, to that all of a sudden we are going to have a prolonged recession. I don't think there's any way to avoid it at this point. And, and, you know, prolonged is relative. It could be weeks or months or whatever, but it's, it's painful whenever it happens. Right. And, and so it'll be very interesting to see, cause you're starting to see it now on crypto Twitter. It's, it's, the sky's falling. Oh my God, I've lost so much money. Um, and, and, you know, that is terrible and it's heart wrenching to, to, to see that, but it also kind of points to maximum fear. And as somebody who gets contrarian investing, I kind of feel like, you know, we, we're getting pretty close to maximum fear from a traditional kind of non-black swan event perspective. You know, a true black swan could make it much worse, but I don't think that's really what's happening. Mm -hmm. But how do you reconcile, Bill, like the promise of decentralized finance and crypto, which is supposed to be antithetical to Wall Street and the inherent risks that underpin some of these these platforms or or products, is there that much different between the systemic risk that a algo stablecoin poses to our small market and the risk that maybe you know unbridled greed within Wall Street banks pose to you know mortgage backed securities et cetera? That's a great question. So so I have a very simplistic take on this today. The, the two truly decentralized systems we have in money and banking right now are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Everything else is a big question mark. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying mm -hmm. it's a big question mark. It's either unproven, it's early, it's not decentralized, right? A stable coin, uh, uh, certainly a collateralized stablecoin is not decentralized, nor do they actually purport to be or, or make pretend that they are. Luna is different because the theory is, is that we, we, we could be truly decentralized and, and obviously that hasn't worked and maker, the die has kind of worked, right? It's over collateralized and, and algorithmic at the same time, very complicated, but it's more or less worked, but it's never worked at the size of what Luna was getting to. Right. And that's mostly because of anchor, I think. And, and so you have all of these kind of had a worst case scenario, right? Because you had a lot of people putting, and it's beyond your question, but you had a lot of people putting reserve assets. Just spoke to a friend um, on my own show two, two hours ago who had all of his personal reserve assets in Anchor, in UST, didn't make the correlation that because he was super long Luna, he had effectively doubled down, right? Because mm -hmm. if one fails, they basically both fail, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically what happened. Not only did he lose his Luna bet, which was not earth shattering, you, losing his Anchor UST position was earth shattering because mm -hmm. those were his reserves. And, and, and so th that's, that's heart wrenching when, when you see that people are using this stuff as kind of their personal bank account in a way that goes beyond their understanding of where we really are in these development cycles.
And that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. But I guess it's the same level of like, it's the same level of opaqueness where you don't necessarily understand the risks or think something's riskless. And at the same time, you did have like a lot of voices out there, not promising so much, but, but effectively saying this is riskless, which is mm-hmm. where you probably run into trouble. But what I would hate to see is you should never, if, look, I, there's very few things in life where if somebody says something is riskless, you should believe them. I can't, as a matter of fact, off the top of my head, it's very hard for me to come up with one. Right. So, so that in of itself is a massive, not only red flag, I don't even know what it is. You're getting whacked over the head with a ski pole. Um, <laughs> if somebody is telling you that something is riskless and I'm in the business of managing risk. And, and, and so we get on, I get on my show every Friday and I tell people, here are the risks, right? Somebody asked me today, are there risks with USDC? Of course there are. And anybody who says there aren't is lying or doesn't understand is ignorant or is trying to pull the proverbial wool over your eyes. So, so, you know, I have a hard problem with, you know, just even hearing the phrase riskless as it relates to money, banking, financial services, whether it's centralized, decentralized, regulated or unregulated. Mm-hmm. So what are the risks with like, how do you um, sort of present the risk that might exist with with your own business? Sure. How sure. do you manage risk? hundred percent. So there's there's several things that have to be managed at the same time. Right. Whenever we're basically uh, managing loans in in a new stablecoin that we haven't done before, we'll actually analyze it. We don't do that right now. There's no new stablecoins that we're going after, but we've looked at many and we've gone and analyzed the projects, even talked to developers, and we'll look at you know some cases, look at code if it makes sense. Right. And and so there's been stablecoins where we've said, hey, uh, there's too much systemic risk in us basically. Um, doing t- taking loan positions based upon this project that I won't, mm. won't name names, but but some of them you maybe your audience has never heard of, right? Uh, we get a very a lot of very interesting requests from a lending perspective, and most of them it, when I interesting usually means something we'll probably say no to for now. <laughs> uh, let's leave it at that. So so that's and there's can a lot get, of can I get a loan on my my former mustache. Yeah. Well, turn it into an NFT and then apparently one of my competitors will, will lend you against it. Uh, we don't do that. So, so, um, yeah, uh, I can teach you how to manipulate the price of the NFT on your mustache to get a better loan from somebody who would give you one, which is part of the problem. Um, so yeah, so, uh, so, so look, the bottom line is, is that you have institutional loans, you have minor loans, you have retail loans and you have DeFi itself. They all have different risk profiles. They all have different air, expertise requirements that they map to inside of Abra as a central centralized entity working with our, our, our trust bank partner, Prime Trust, who's paying that interest. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to lay out all the risk management processes. We have risk committees that meet, you know, and, and you still, on occasion, you get it wrong. And so, so risk management is also about making sure you know, that you're not exposed to something that is going to basically have a, an outsized effect on everything else that goes right. And that's why you don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's it, when, you, when you're managing it from a fixed income book perspective, if, mm-hmm. if, if you have conviction personally and you want to go make that bet on Luna, that's on you. And, and you should be within your rights to make that bet and suffer the consequences. Even if I offer that, you know, as a separate position in Abra, which we don't, uh, we might in the future for other DeFi things, but we we never offered uh, Anchor. But that would be on you. That's different from accessing a system where you know there's regulated entities managing risk, and um, that's always going to be the difference. Back to your earlier question about what does DeFi mean to a centralized banking entity? Well, it's a tool for us to basically leverage a global system that should be more efficient at, at, at accessing untapped opportunities. That's not necessarily what's happening now, but at scale, that, that should be what's happening, whether it's supply chain finance or you know, retail lending across borders and all the other things that are likely to happen in the future with DeFi that I'm excited about. But we're certainly not there yet. Is there a concern that um, like this might be a branding marketing concern of this, I mean, it, I don't have it right now. I don't have the paper on me, but it was literally all the stuff going on in the world from, you know, mounting inflation to Ukraine, the f- top fold 
of the cover of the Wall Street Journal today was Terra imploding. And is it a concern for your business that people might look at that and think, okay, that was tied to that weird, crazy 20% yield product. Okay. I see Abra is offering, you know, two to seven to seven to 12. And then they think, okay, that's just too high. High, high yield means high risk. How do you help like educate actually like to put it more simply. And I asked this question to, to Jeremy Allaire, um, how do these yields work? Like, wh why are they so high? And and how can like a regular person differentiate between like a, a good yield that's not going to blow up and and maybe one that you should be a bit more skeptical about? Sure. So so uh, in simplistic terms, if you take fifteen minutes and do Google searches on how average generates yield, you're going to get very multiple versions of the same answer. It's not possible that you don't if you actually take 15 minutes to search because I've gone, I've answered this question so many times over the last 18 months uh, that it's not possible that it's not out there. Okay, that's number one. And you know, everyone, regardless of what company, even if you're working with a competitor or a partner or whatever, you sh you need to be doing this. And if you can't find the answer, move on. <laughs> my opinion, move on, right? Because somebody like us or one or another competitor is probably going to give an answer. Now, then you have to decide whether you believe the answer and the team is credible and all the things that he's saying and is he being consistent and you know are there you know a lot of negative naysayers out there that you know rug pulls or whatever and do your homework and if you take an hour just an hour for the basics <laughs> and 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 there's a lot of people you left but there's a lot of people who don't do that yeah and it makes me nuts right um not just because you know we're doing right by everyone but but it's just common sense it's your money the only person who's ultimately responsible for your money is you. And I take our role seriously in you giving us, you know, and Prime Trust and our partners that yeah. trust. But, you know, caveat emptor does matter, right? There's no, there's no, there's no law that's ever going to make up for the fact that you need to ask some basic questions, right? And, and I really hope that to your question that, Everyone who is starting to basically look at crypto as the future of banking starts asking those questions more regularly. Now, obviously, as a reporter, you're going to always do it at a, a level much deeper than everyone else. But I'm just talking about the basics. Right. And I still see a lot of people not asking those questions. Do you think that there'll be some degree of blowback for the firms that offered access or exposure to this asset, whether it's an exchange or a firm like Abra, what, what could be the potential blowback there? Yeah, uh, no, I don't think so. I think, look, I, I've, I've been very consistent on how I feel about the way Bitcoin and Ethereum development works. And why I think uh, a lot of these competitive crypto projects are important. I think we need the technology competition on the one hand to propel the space forward. You know, I, I talk to Michael Saylor all the time, and one of the things he says is, is that you can't change the atomic structure of gold, yet we're out basically mucking with with Bitcoin. And you know, I get his point. And so Bitcoin does need to evolve at some rate. It should be a very slow rate. And it should be very hard to change the the most pristine monetary asset we've ever had. And so I'd rather see Digibytes or Litecoin take risks with Mimblewimble and other things that seem really relevant and cool to me quickly than Bitcoin, which isn't going to happen anyway. So something's got to do it. Now, that having been said, what is what does that imply for investors? Because I came up through a traditional venture world. There was no tokenization of anything. The word didn't exist even in games. So, so what does that mean for everybody else? Well, what it means now is, is that things that might've been in the university lab or at a seed stage startup are now exposed to yeah. individual investors very quickly. Now, where I sometimes have concerns and I can't keep up myself, and I've been doing this for a long time, is where are projects in the cycle? And we try to look at it. And, you know, it's like Abby Johnson to some degree. She doesn't go in and look at every penny stock that you can buy on Fidelity's, you know, brokerage 
and and say buy this, don't buy that, right? If people ask me, I tell them on Money Talks. I say, oh look, I, I'm, I own this, but make your own. Here's why, but make your own choice. Mm-hmm. I I do have concerns that some people are simply using it like a casino as opposed to looking at it like, oh, I want to support this project or I have conviction for, you know, the fact that Digibyte has a, a, a multi proof of work scheme that Bitcoin doesn't have, which could be interesting, uh, you know, or, or there's some banking reason why XRP is interesting to me. And, 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 and it becomes like this kind of short term casino mentality as opposed to I want to participate in this token economy and I have conviction around these specific projects solving these specific problems for this reason. And when you're that early, you should probably dig in a little bit and have a little bit of conviction. If you're later in the game Mm. and it's the token equivalent of Apple in in a commodity sense, then maybe it's different because Bitcoin's not going to zero. I feel very confident in saying Bitcoin's not going to zero. First of all, I'll buy it all at a much lower price, (laughs) at at a higher price than zero. And I will, by the way, and then I'll, I'll, I'll sell later. But, you know, I think there are altcoin projects that are going to go to zero. And and sorry for the long answer, but I, I do think that it's important to recognize how we got here. And it is important to have technology competition, but it's also important to spend time if you're super early in a development cycle to educate yourself, in my opinion. Yeah. Right? Or suffer the consequences. Don't take the big VC's word for gospel truth all the time either. That's for sure. But a lot of these projects don't even have that. Yeah. Right. Because you can fork Bitcoin at MIT on a weekend, call it Bitcoin X, put it out there. Bitcoin Abra. Bitcoin Abra, which I wouldn't do, by the way. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, call it whatever you want. And you don't need VC funding for that. Right. I mean, that's what yeah. Bit, uh, Bitcoin SV and these other things, you know, so... So it's who who do you trust, right, becomes really important. And that's why I keep coming back to this, you know, read, <laughs> read, educate yourself, listen to podcasts. It's not that hard if you're willing to spend a couple of hours before you put your money to work. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling in rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A crypto fin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. So let's maybe double click on on Bitcoin itself for a bit. I, I feel like if we harken back to the beginning of the crisis or the pandemic, that's when the you know store of value narrative really took hold. 
And, you know, obviously Bitcoin saw some massive, impressive gains since then, running up to over 60,000, 69,420, because we're in the simulation very firmly. But then, you know, everyone, you know, decoupling kept becoming like the buzzword. And, you know, whenever you saw just a slight, you know, spread between or decoupling of the NASDAQ composite and Bitcoin, you know, people would tweet out their charts, but it hasn't really happened to that great of an extent. It's still like extremely correlated to tech, but that's like one part of the equation. But the thing that I've noticed more recently is that the like payments narrative has kind of been percolating more. And that was kind of evident. This story was somewhat buried just because of all the Luna news, but David Marcus is going back out there and starting a company dedicated to building out lightning infrastructure. And like, I mean, just based off of the valuation that I've heard and the amount of money they've raised, clearly investors are interested in this again, kind of a long-winded um, question, but how do you think about all of these narratives? Like what, which ones are you paying attention to? Is Bitcoin a payment story or is it a store of value story? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so look, I have to pay attention to all of them. That's my job, uh, part of my job. And let me break it down. So, so let's start with store of value and historically how we got here and, and, and the reality. So I was on a panel at Milken like three or four years ago, kind of infamous now with Rubini, was kind of his coming out for being the Antichrist <laughs> of Bitcoin. And I, think I, rem- I think I remember reporting on that like five years yeah, ago. Yeah, it was. I did a. It's the blog is still up on my site. It basically I used the image of the the guy's face melting from Indiana Jones to, <laughs> to, to kind of. I, I, sorry, Nuriel, but that's what you look. Is like that when he said it was the bubble of all bubbles? He said it was the bubble. I mean, he said worse than that. I mean, it was the just this, this vitriolic. People were leaving. I think it was the the who was the former uh, speaker uh, who 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 quit the young guy. Anyway, people were leaving his session and, and piling into this to hear because they couldn't believe what this guy was saying. Anyway, he was trying to make the point that that it's like it's going to zero. It's it's not a store of value, and he could have actually made a valid point. But he was doing it in a way that didn't really understand anything relating to network effects and how technology adoption works and S curves and any of this. And so, so, so my point is, is that if you actually look what's happening with Bitcoin today, what we figured out, and 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 I'll give credit to folks like Ralph Paul figured out the same thing, is that this is really about network effects today. It's not about Bitcoin's use case as a stored value, yet it's about the promise of that happening, which is why there's so many people coming into it, because they believe in the promise, which is that's what's creating the network effects. It's not the usage in the Ukraine and Venezuela and Argentina as much as we all want to believe that. I believe in the promise of Bitcoin getting there, which is exactly what was, I mean, if you go back and read some of the Austrian economist works that predate the internet, they explained what would happen if we had private money. Or even the the, the thought of, 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 a, of a private money being created would lead to hoarding of that asset before it became useful. They worked it out in their heads. And, this, and Bitcoin is playing that playing it out exactly as they predicted. It's it's truly astounding. And, and, and there's some stuff I can give you for the show notes if, mm-hmm. if people want to go but that's also subject to the whims of the broader markets, just like Amazon, which got the same network effects, right? So if you look at a, a log chart of Amazon's price from 98 till now, it basically looks like it's up and to the right on a log chart, but it's actually got multiple 50% pullbacks from a price perspective, which is exactly what happens historically with exponentially growing tech assets when the public can have access to buying them. Guess what? Well, we have that. And not only do we have that, but we also have all of the inherent issues that go with, you know, leveraged futures markets that U.S. stocks yeah. don't have. <laughs> put that on top. So, so that has nothing to do with store value as a use case yet. It has to do with the promise of many p- people believing that it's going to get there. Now, I think the same thing is happening now with payments. All right, meaning that a lot of people are starting to believe that crypto is going to be used in some form as payments, whether it's stable coins, especially like USDC uh, or Tether, 
or Bitcoin itself. And I think one of the biggest announcements for me at the Bitcoin conference was that the idea that you could actually do stable coins over Lightning, super interesting to me, because I'm a little skeptical that in the next three or four years, anyone is going to want to sell Bitcoin in order to use it for micropayments if they can do the same thing with stable coins at very slow cost. You can't, it's very hard, obviously, Ethereum gas fees completely shut out any type of micropayments and then you get into layer two, but you have the same issues with layer two on Ethereum as you do with Bitcoin in terms of usage and adoption and, and how to integrate them into apps and, and how you manage stored value. And it's very complicated. And, and so if we can make the usage of, of stable coins for micropayments, and by micro, I mean anything less than like $1,000, mm-hmm. really accessible, it's a game changer in my opinion, solves a lot of problems. And I can give you a list of those problems. Okay. okay. From, from, yeah. But let's explain like how it works first. How does, sure? how does, um, stable coins on lightning work? So, so I, I, I looked at the, I watched the demo. <laughs> I read the explanation. I can't, I, I couldn't explain it back to you. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I could not explain it back to you, but I do believe the demo I saw was real based upon okay, watching, you know, watching the tech part of it. But I, I have, I don't have, act, I'm not a, I don't code anymore. Um, and my team hasn't had time to look at it. I did talk to a couple other people who looked at it and they said, yes, it, it, it is genuine. It's basically like early days, but it is possible. And more work is going to be done in this area. Um, okay. But what problems, but, then what problems does it solve? Sure. Well, think about it, right? Yeah. So the, the, the problem, I mean, why did I start Abra? I was working on remittances, right? So, so the promise of remittances the, the reason that there's a floor on remittance prices globally is not that Western Union has figured out how to screw the public, <laughs> okay? The public is getting screwed, but they're getting screwed because there's so many hands in the pie when you do a Western Union transaction that no one's willing to do the transaction for free. Mm. And by the time you pay all the people the floor on what they're willing to accept, you get to a floor on remittance prices, okay? The only way to solve that problem is to eliminate all those hands in the pie that are trying to get paid. And- this idea of, of eliminating all those central parties via lightning is actually very compelling, regardless of what the asset is, because you could move baseball cards between two parties. And if they were liquid on both ends, right, at, at low spreads, you could sell the baseball card. You have a remittance. It would just take a long time to get the baseball card from me to you. OK, the advantage of lightning is, is it happens instantly instead of sending a baseball card in the mail. OK, so so that's one example. Pa- Micro payments at the point of sale accessing uh, payment rails at lower cost, like credit card merchant discount rates uh, in, in developing markets are like six, seven, eight percent in some places, which is nuts, right? Because the credit risk is significant, right? Even for debit transactions. So so anyway, so, so there's a lot of potential there to remove intermediaries and dramatically lower friction, lower costs. And you can actually simulate non-reversible cash transactions in some cases that are digital, which is very hard to do with the existing debit networks, which kind of use credits to actually settle because nothing settles in real time. So somebody's always extending credit to somebody else. And that introduces all kinds of problems. But with stablecoin based settlement, you can kind of simulate cash, which which is advantageous actually to both parties because it actually lowers costs, right? Because a lot of the credit card processing costs are passed on to the consumer because a lot of retailers in these developing markets are operating at very, very thin margins. And so, and then there's supply chain economics, right? So if you think about supply chain finance, uh, Foxconn is a large investor in Abra. Mm-hmm. They're one of the largest fi- uh, finance, not only supply chain companies and, and contract manufacturers, but they're also one of the largest supply chain finance companies in the world. And most of those financial transactions are isolated to a certain part of Asia that is traditionally operating in that space for many reasons, but migrating that to a crypto world, I think opens that up to a lot of financial innovation across different borders, right? Uh, and so I would love to see, you know, innovation in that space happening via stable coins, for example, you know, and, and I think it will. And so there's, I can, I can go on and on. There's a lot of ex- payment examples from micropayments to macro payments to different types of lending that I think are ripe for innovation via myriad crypto models that haven't been, we're not focused on post 2017 kind of crash. And I think that my feeling is, is that this is a good time, especially when, you know, 
VCs prices are being reset minus, you know, David's new startup, which is probably uh, <laughs> not not in that camp just because of who the, the founders are. But for everyone else, it, it's a good time to be starting companies. And I hope that this area gets a lot of focus. I know we're focused on it heavily at Abra. Uh, we're looking at everything from point of sale payments, instant on credits, not only in the U.S., but outside the U.S. My favorite analogy there, by the way, is India, right? So India, um, uh, gold is used as kind of intergenerational wealth for a lot of families, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a token thing, because token in the sense that you don't sell it, you don't access the wealth, it just gets passed on from family to family. But what if you could access that wealth? Yeah. Right. What if, what if you could borrow against it in real time? Yeah. Right. And I think that's a future, big part of the future of banking. Yeah. It, that actually like is kind of uh, how I think about the value of NFTs in a sense. It's, it's like for the first time, these objects that are effectively, you know, not yeah, like signals to the world about who you are. And we've mm -hmm. always had those, whether it's, you know, the gold you wear on a chain or around your neck, but you can then leverage it in a very liquid way and tap into the value mm -hmm. in a way that would be effectively impossible prior to the advent of this technology, whether it's like the, the stuff you wear or even like the house you live in. I guess like, you know, there, there are HELOCs that can allow you to like tap into the appreciation of your home, but it's still like a very arduous process and it's not very easy where in a web three world, I mean, I could see you being able to tap into the value of, you know, your social media following to the, the skins you might have in an online game, you know, through Abra, Abra maybe the gold in your dresser. Yeah. Well, I think Bitcoin actually becomes intergenerational wealth. That's where I was going with this for many families. And you can access that, right? Why would you want to ever sell an asset that's been appreciating 100% a year? Uh, I'm not saying that'll happen forever, but it's certainly been happening for the last 11 years on average. And if you can access that on a reasonably low LTV model, right, we'll give you a 0% interest loan on a 15% LTV and let you roll it over forever right now. So why wouldn't you do that, right? To access that, that kind of digital gold, which is what I think happens on an intergenerational wealth basis in the future. And there'll only be a few currencies remaining. I, I think I agree with Michael Saylor on this. The dollar is not going to go away anytime soon, but it might be the dollar, the euro, the yen, the renminbi that, that compete. And they're basically kind of the, the remaining shit coins. And then we hold the, the pristine asset and borrow against it. And potentially even for debit transactions, I don't mean irresponsibly mm -hmm. just borrow to have money. I mean, I go to the point of sale, the banking system knows that I have this much Bitcoin, it lends me this amount of money to complete my payments, and that's debited later, right? And that's a much more efficient way to process credit transactions in countries where there's no credit scoring system, right? Which is most countries. And so having a, a kind of digital collateral, I think, changes everything. And we haven't even begun to process the implications of that uh, for, I think, billions of people. Can we talk a little bit about what you guys are doing with crypto-backed mortgages? Sure. Sure. So, so we announced uh, a partnership with a company called Proppy, um, who uh, is a very interesting company. They've been training... Uh, agents all over the country uh, for a couple of years now on a couple of things. One is how to use their uh, digital titling system for processing closing transactions on homes. And now uh, using Abra's uh, crypto lending solution, you'll be able to basically use crypto to, and the first step we're focused really on the down payments because you know we're not, we're not financing homes yet. Uh, but mm. for most people, uh, for most homes in the U.S., the amount of the down payment you would need is within the limits of what you could potentially qualify for if you have enough Bitcoin or Ethereum with Abra to get a loan uh, to, to, to use for the down payment. Because most banks won't recognize crypto. I don't even know any uh, that will recognize crypto when they're trying to figure out your um, uh, financial status when you're trying to qualify for a mortgage. And yeah. for people who don't necessarily, some people end up 
historically maybe looking at a piece of a loan for a down payment that's separate using other collateral. And this really helps. And we've already processed, you know, several uh, loan transactions explicitly for this this down payment transaction. Now, I do foresee that eventually uh, we'll be doing both, uh, you know, not this year, uh, but certainly in the future, we'll be we'll be doing both primary home mortgage lending as well as, you know, lending for the down payment. And the difference here, meaning what value does Abra provide, is that if you are a crypto investor, right, there's a different formula that will go into the qualification for the mortgage beyond just the home value, right? And, and the percentage of down payment, because it will also factor in crypto uh, assets that, like I said, the underwriters by and large won't factor in today. And I can tell you firsthand they won't because I've tried. Uh, and I've tried with many, many companies and I yeah. more or less have to. Anyway, so it's really interesting. And so I think this is going to be a big part of the story of Bitcoin becoming a personal reserve asset, maybe even Ethereum eventually becoming partially a personal reserve asset, although I think Ethereum is going to be more on the banking rails. But but regardless which one it is for people, I think you're going to see more and more lending models that take advantage of the fact that you're holding the appreciating asset long term and borrowing in the depreciating asset. It's that simple. Well, if we look at it or think about it from a micro level, I think we can really unpack the significance of what this means for Bitcoin and crypto more broadly. I don't know where you were a year ago with this, but I had to sell some crypto for the down payment of the house I'm in right now. So imagine if crypto folks had access to broader financial tools that would allow them to preserve their crypto holdings that just like raises the floor or rather diminishes the selling pressure to an extent, which then yep. just creates a healthier, robust capital market. 100%. And so I think that there's a model to be had that looks at home values, digital assets, values, income, and figures out formulas that take all of this into account that are going to work for the digital economy as opposed to the old economy, which is what the current underwriters are doing, which is why you you and I both had the same problem for home purchases. And we'll see. So but who's I, gonna who's gonna yeah. build this? Well, I can tell you we're gonna be in the space. Uh, yeah. and, and I think the question becomes what happens to traditional banks? Now, my prediction is that the most valuable bank in the world in 15 years will be a crypto-centric bank. And that bank will basically offer a combination of trading services, institutional services, wealth management services, but they're going to be built on a combination of DeFi rails, crypto collateralized lending rails, and a whole bunch of other things. DeFi, uh, you know, for different purposes, et cetera, et cetera, but with risk management in this way. I don't think we're going to be at a point in the next 20 years where you're going to have fully functioning large global banks that are DAOs. <laughs> um, it's a cool idea. It may happen at some point, maybe at small scale. Some, somebody will try anything these days. But, 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 but at large scale, I don't think it would work today. And, and, and Luna is, a, is probably an early indication as to why. Because again, decentralized stablecoin versus centralized stablecoin, right? So anyway, that's what I think is going to happen. And I think that the regulators, I know you didn't ask about this, have a big problem in this model because there's no borders. There's no off switch. You know, there is for my company, but the underlying systems that we want to use ultimately have no off switch. They have no idea the concept of borders. They don't care about the Bitcoin doesn't know what Bitcoin doesn't know what the SEC is. It doesn't know what the CFTC is and it doesn't care. It's just software. Right. And, and, and so that's just one simple example. And, and you multiply this times the entire banking system, bond markets, which I think are going to be, in a large sense, crypto collateralized in the future. Not not all, but but many, right? And we haven't even begun to process what that means, as you know, this big Dalio reset comes, right? What what does that mean for for the traditional bond market, which traditionally leads the way? Uh, I've been thinking a lot about it as a as a reformed fixed income guy. And it's fascinating because I, I really do think that there's a big global credit reset coming that's going to be crypto centric. And it won't be a revolution that's overnight. It'll creep up on us and then it'll happen quickly because I think Bitcoin's going to $100 trillion. And at that point, 
That's a lot of collateral. Market cap. Market cap. Yeah. At, at $100 trillion market cap, that's a lot of collateral, right? And we haven't even begun to process what people are going to do with that collateral. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it speaks to a broader point that I've been thinking about recently. Well, not, <laughs> not that recently given the price action, but you have this whole new cadre or class of like very wealthy people, you know, newly created wealth with very little, very little tools to help manage that wealth or manage that risk. Like there's not really financial advisors or wealth managers who can work with, you know, crypto multimillionaires or, or even billionaires in the same way that you have in traditional finance, mm. like the private banking system can't really like serve these people because it's just a totally different, you know, asset. And so I don't know, it's something that I've been thinking about, like, how do you do estate planning for crypto, mm -hmm. the, the crypto wealthy and taxes and, and all this stuff that there's nobody really doing yeah. it. We're having this in one shop, you know, in one 100%. shop. 100%. And so, so that's going to change. I think we're at this kind of friction point right now where, uh, oh my God, we're going to get a 401k that supports Bitcoin, or we're going to have uh, self-directed IRAs where you can actually do crypto trades. And, you know, look, certainly in 10 years, it's going to be table stakes. Then they work backwards and decide, mm. you know, what the, the transition looks like. And what that implies is, is that all of the RIAs out there, and I can tell you, they're coming to us in droves asking for help, right? For, for the international audience, the, you know, registered investment advisors are basically people who are fiduciaries that help you put your money to work. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money being put to work via registered investment advisors in the United States and their equivalents in Europe and other places. They, they're called other things, but, but effectively they do the same thing. None of them, the ones that are, are around up to zero, but none of them are effectively operating in this space today. And that is going to change in a massive way over the next five to 10 years. Meaning by at the end of the 10 years, they're all going to be doing it or they're going to have retired or they're not going to have clients anymore or some combination. And the ones that are remaining are going to be doing it. And it's going to be that 40, 60 portfolio is going to be completely changed in favor of something that includes this as basically, you know, again, the culmination of, of astoundingly what, what Hayek wrote about in the 1970s and the denationalization of money. And I still don't understand. He, he must have been like an alien from the future or something. I don't know how he did it, but, <laughs> but, but he did. And, and, and nevertheless, he wrote about it and, and, and it's happening. And so that's where this is headed. And, and every wealth manager with any sense in the world is going to have no choice but to get on board. And we can see it inside of ABRA, the numbers of, of them that are coming to us asking for help. Uh, can you help me get my clients into this is the easiest question I get. Then the second question is, well, how do I advise them? They're the advisor. <laughs> They're asking us for help yeah. and I advise them. And, and, you know, we can't directly answer that question uh, to the client. We can give them our opinion <laughs> um, to them, right? Because it's not, you know, we're not giving them investment advice. But, um, you know, we may, we may end up having no choice but to become an RIA ourselves, by the way, just, just because of this issue. Uh, even if we're not necessarily taking on all of those clients directly, but just to support the, the armies of RIAs themselves, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon right now. And I think the other thing, you know, that it's also a segue into something you didn't ask, which is uh, institutional uh, adoption. And to me, everybody's talking about Luna and, and Terra and, and it's, it's important. And, and honestly, in four years, that in, in four years, in six months, that will be forgotten, guaranteed. Okay. Yeah. And what yeah. won't be forgotten in six months is the the FISBA announcement this week, the FSBA, the, the, the Financial uh, uh, Accounting Standards Board, okay, basically saying that they're going to look at the accounting rules for uh, how you basically deal with things like Bitcoin. And I think that's the biggest barrier to adoption right now, because basically you get all of the downside of Bitcoin in your accounting with none of the upside. That's insane. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Why, right. It's almost like saying that they're basically saying, please don't hold this. Now, Tesla said, screw you. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And they got hammered for it. Not really hammered in the sense of the value is still the value. It's just yeah. the way you report it makes it look like you don't know what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And, and so I actually think that's going to be fixed. To me, that's the big news of the week.
So basically, um, you know, to explain it to the listener, if if you are holding Bitcoin on your balance sheet, if it's a loss, you have to mark it as a right. loss. But if you have a gain, you're, you're not able to mark that gain. Correct. You basically, you, you hold it at the price you bought it until the price goes down, then you take the loss. But if the price <laughs> goes up, you get no benefit. It makes no sense. Yeah. There should be either real time or monthly or daily mark to market, just like a Wall Street firm would do on positions. And that's the end of it, right? Or there should be asset-specific rules. Like a property, okay, it's hard to do mark-to-market. I get it. But for Bitcoin, it's not. It's liquid 24-7. Price is there. Right. Price is right, right there. Right, 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 right. That's a big, big deal. And I think like, you know, Michael Saylor made this point on Natalie's show. And he said, you know, it's so bad that them looking at this can only make it better. There's nothing they can do from an accounting perspective that will make it worse. So this is a, the <laughs> fact that they're looking at this is a really big deal. And he's right. Look at it. It's like, there's, what could they possibly do to make it worse? So I think that's, to me, in the long term, that's the biggest announcement this week. It's not the Luna stuff. I realize, look, I get the pain. I have friends who've lost a lot of money and my heart bleeds for them. But long term, this is a really big deal, this issue. And we shall see. Yep. Well, the Bronx bomber, Mr. <laughs> Bill Barheit, CEO of Abra. Thanks for stopping by the show. My pleasure. Great to hear your voice and uh, hope you're doing well. <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging in there, you know, yeah. day by day. Where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're working on? Yeah, obviously, Abra.com is, is a great place to start. ton of educational information there. Uh, we host Money Talks every Friday on our YouTube channel where we answer questions about what we're doing. I'm pretty active on Twitter, Bill Barheit on Twitter. Uh, it's not hard to find us. We're out there. You're out there. One of my favorite companies, CEOs, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll have you back on soon. We'll have to do like a specific show just to unpack your whole macro worldview. Wow. Okay. We'll, we'll have to do that at some point. I, I'd, I'd be honored. I appreciate that. If, if inflation is like still mounting two months from now, we'll have to, we'll have, to have you back on. I, I don't know if we're at Pico inflation or not. We shall see. Yeah, I think I think we're we're at peak inflation. It's going to be really high, but it's going to come down because I think oil and bond markets have have done yeah. what the Fed couldn't do. We'll see. Yeah, it's scary. We'll see. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Frank. Good to see you. Good to see you. The scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.